Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Secrets, Sex and Sliding Doors. And if you haven't already, please do remember to keep rating, reviewing and recommending our podcast. A massive thank you to all of you who are supporting us. We love you, motherfuckers. But back to today's theme, which is secrets. 97% of people apparently are currently keeping a secret. And for most of the 1960s and 70s, the secret number for US presidents with which to launch nuclear missiles was, wait for it, 00, 00, 00, 00, 00, 00. Christ, even Trump probably could have remembered that. I think my Skybox parental password's harder than that. There are seven keys to the internet worldwide which all have to be in the same place at a secret location in the States if ever it needs to be restarted. God, I didn't know the whole internet could have to be switched off and on again. And one of those seven keys is in Somerset, apparently, which is near where I'm from. I mean, I don't know exactly where it is, but I'm guessing not far from where I'm from. And the last surviving American soldier from World War One died just 10 years ago at the age of 110. And when he was asked his secret for living so long he said when you start to die don't oh well you know me don't want to waste anybody's time that was today's guest sarah keyworth and here are a few more world war facts before we get into the episode welsh speakers were used to send secret messages during world war ii And talking of secret messages, by the way, I'm guessing that's because not many people spoke Welsh outside of Wales. And talking of secret messages, British secret agents apparently used semen as invisible ink during World War I. Good Lord. And a pilot testing a top secret new aircraft during World War II wore a bowler hat and a gorilla suit so that anyone who said they'd seen him afterwards would not be believed. And finally, a prisoner in a German prisoner of war camp during the Second World War stitched secret messages in Morse code into a quilt. And those messages read, God save the king and fuck Hitler. And the German officers who did not realise what they said put the quilt on lovely display. Can you hear me? I can hear you well, yeah. Just going to make sure it's actually coming through my mic so that you get the best. Yeah, it is great. Amazing. Sarah Keyworth is an award-winning comedian who was nominated for Best Newcomer in Edinburgh in 2018. And she has since appeared on Live at the Apollo, Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats, ITV's The Stand-Up Sketch Show and Comedy Central's Roast Battle. And if you haven't seen that one, uh, that's legendary with her ex-partner, Catherine Bohart. Um, And she took up stand-up very early, the opposite end of the scale from me. She was just at uni when she started, and it's fair to say she has never looked back. Her brilliant four-part BBC Radio 4 show, Are You a Boy or a Girl?, is still available on BBC Sounds, and she has an Amazon Prime special 
Dark Horse. She'll be in Edinburgh throughout August with her brand new solo show, Lost Boy, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. And that obviously will be touring around the place after August if you're catching up on this down the line. Sarah and I talked about fate, breakups, invisibility, life choices, comedy, acting, gender, performance, authenticity, chance, sexuality, confirmation bias and stereotypes. But I started by asking her about her new podcast, which she hosts with another one of my absolute favourite comedians who you should check out if you don't know her, Mickey Overman. It's called Thank Fuck For That. Uh, and it's about like uh, near misses, like, uh, and like sliding doors moments. It's slightly inspired by sliding doors. That kind oh, of brilliant of like, could something quite small and innocuous have changed your life? We do like a big moment, like a like a near miss, and then we do like a small one. Oh, I love it! Yeah, it's good fun. We've only had uh, we've done three three episodes have come out, and we've got a couple more. I'm guessing you and Mickey had some sliding doors moments that made you think about doing the podcast yeah I mean I think like so the sort of initial interest for me was the sort of like near-death experiences just because I find them so or like near like we've got some that are like close to like death or injury but then others are like um less less uh fatal um but yeah the, the near miss stories which I just find so sort of like uh like hauntingly fascinating when you just think about what could have been um and then I was talking to Mickey about it and she was like oh and like we we like she has a real significant sliding doors moment that sort of was a catalyst for her moving to London and starting stand-up and it was a complete accident like she sent out she updated her LinkedIn profile and um LinkedIn sent a email to every single one of her contacts saying that she'd done it and then a woman that she'd met in London a few years before like replied as if it was to her and was like oh it's so nice to hear from you if you ever want to come and stay in London you can come stay with us so it was just this like really weird act like Mickey was like I was humiliated that this email had gone out and then this just one response came back from somebody who obviously had never heard of LinkedIn and was like oh Mickey's email <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of LinkedIn doing something cool before so I'm really this is yeah yeah so yeah so she was like it'd be really cool to talk about that the like smaller like like really like just almost there everyone has those real like like insignificant moments that actually just like just sort of push you in a direction that changes everything uh my one of mine was that I didn't really want to go to uni like I wanted to go but I wasn't sure where I I was wasn't particularly interested but I went like my I finished school the years that the fees were going up so my mum was like trying to like like push me out the door before the fee. Oh, I was I was going the year before all the fees went up. So the uni like, fees. You didn't go to private yeah. school just to be. Clear. No, no, no. <laughs> just checking that people won't be like, oh, I didn't know that. Sarah no, so I, I finished sixth form mm-hmm. the year before all of okay. the uni fees. Before went the up. twenty-seven grand thing mm-hmm. came in. Yeah, yeah. And my mom was very much like, like if you're gonna go, go now. Um, 
and I just I was in a sort of like weird place in my life where I think you know I was a, t- a teenager and was struggling with the idea of moving and I'd been through like a, a breakup that was so like such a short relationship but felt very significant at the time and I I was I didn't really want anything in my life to change like I was sort of kind of hoping that relationship would like rekindle and I didn't want to I didn't want to change anything in case that could happen and um my mum was very much trying to push me to to go and do it for this financial reason because she was like you know I don't actually know if we could support you if this got more expensive um and uh so we were looking at unis and I was miserably traipsing around these open days, just not interested at all. And, and we went to, uh, to Montford and Leicester. And because I was quite unhappy, I'd kind of fucked my AS levels. So my predicted grades were a bit ropey. So I wasn't like, it was also quite limiting with the choices of where I was able to go. Mm-hmm. We went to Montford Uni in Leicester. It's such a, it's such a lovely uni. Like it's a real nice campus and the, it's just like it's quite small and it was close to Nottingham where I'm from so my mum was like you know it's pretty much ticks all of the boxes for what we want in terms of and then she was like and the toilets in the student union are really nice so that, <laughs> I'm with um, your mum on that yeah like and <laughs> and so she was kind of like I, I think that maybe this is the one for you but I was like I liked it but I, you know it was kind of in my head it was like best of a bad bond I wasn't I had no real, I wasn't engaging with it in any way. And so my mum was kind of, my mum pretty much chose the uni that I was going to, which makes me sound a little bit pathetic. But at that time I was just like not. um, Just makes your mum sound fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not going to really make a sensible choice by myself. And um, without knowing it, she sent me to a city that had a comedy festival and she sent me to a uni that had a really active comedy society that wasn't like a, you know, other universities have like a comedy society that do like sort of sketch and improv and things like that. And you have like the sort of Oxford imps and things. Whereas it had a real, just like gr- like specific group of people that wanted to do stand-up comedy, like individuals who were doing stand-up comedy and helping each other learn and grow and, doing gigs and figuring out car shares and finding out where our local gigs were and um, running gigs within the uni and uh, that was my introduction into doing stand-up comedy and that was my first um, kind of experience in in doing that kind of performance Um, and that was just complete coincidence because I didn't know that and my mum didn't know that Um, and that is, that's, that, I don't, I think if I'd gone to a different university, I don't know if I'd be a comedian right now. That's interesting. So did you, what made you then when you got to Leicester be so interested in comedy? Did It wasn't a thing as you were growing up. Where were you a big comedy no. fan growing up and stuff? So you knew you were into comedy. I was, I was into it and I'd done one gig before because I'd been to Edinburgh. I was part of like a theatre group when I was younger and they went to Edinburgh um, one year for like a, a week or so. And saw loads of comedy. Had, was big. Like I, I used to love Russell Howard. Go and watch him live, and like um, always thought it looked amazing. And uh, so I'd done one gig. So I already had this interest, but uh, was told 
as a sort of 17, 18 year old, like, you know, that's not going to be something that you'll be able to do. Like, what do, what do you think you're going to do with that or anything like that? So and I, did, I had no idea how to get into it either. Like I had no sense of what you do next. I, so it was it was just ama- an amazing coincidence that I had this interest. And then suddenly I found myself in a place where I, there were people who were like, yeah, we know what you do next and we can show you and we can help you and we can give you more opportunities. So you've come through the rank, you've come at it a completely opposite angle of me. So I got into it really pretty late and you got into it from the get-go. So your kind of adult mm-hmm. life has been punctuated by also being a comedian. You, you haven't, um, you know, that's pretty much gone hand yeah. in hand. So, and I always wonder what that must be like well, first of all, I mean, I, I obviously didn't see you doing it when you were at uni, but I've seen you doing it from, you know, early doors of your kind of career post-uni. We and met I do when remember... I was like 22 or something, I think. Like we, We've known each other about seven years. Yeah, I reckon so. So since I was starting out and you were sort of just getting onto the scene, having kind of come out mm. of the uni thing. Yeah, and moved to London. And moved to London, exactly. So we've known each other sort of from pretty similar from, from the start, I guess, of actually mm-hmm. getting out into the London circuit. And I do remember you you watching you, I think it was at Funny Women or something. And I remember watching you and just thinking, I we were so opposite in terms of I was so kind of heavily like I would really write stuff and perform really kind of rigidly it was almost like a sort of presentation which I guess is natural given where Mm. I was coming from at the time and I remember watching you do the story about the um the little girl you nannied for with the foam at the you know the top of the step you know getting out the bath that story yeah 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 and I remember the way you told it and just thinking how completely authentic everything you were saying was that it was so clear it was your voice your story told your way so it felt like which I think takes a lot of people a long time to get to is that the courage and capacity to just say their thing and it felt to me like that was kind of quite effortless for you but also really funny so when I say that back to you does that sound like you or like I was seeing something that doesn't feel like you from the inside it's a real positive reading for something that I often find to be a bit of a flaw uh in the sense that um I will often write sometimes if I'm having like a bit of a wave of um focus and inspiration I will write things out like full hand and um but I'm I don't know what the opposite of a perfectionist is <laughs> but that is me a great that, person like, I'd say perfectionism is nothing to crave I would like say. <laughs> my my motto seems to be that'll do like uh like and so I don't I don't have the focus to 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 learn things and and sometimes I think it is a um it sort of holds me back a bit in that there are there are times in my life when I really should just know something like the back of my hand and I should have it like fully locked down um but I think you're right it has served me really well in that it's able like I I am loose on stage and my attitude towards bits of material it's always like it's you know it's my story I, if, as long as I know the beats of the jokes I can kind of feel my way through the the the, the punchlines and, and the humor of the story um without having to like say it word for word but I know lots of people who who have to learn it like a script and and even now have it like a script and I've always found it really like interesting to see like because sometimes and sometimes I wish that I just did that because it almost takes the pressure off I suppose it's hard to deliver that I used to do that pretty much like if you'd said to me can you send me you know 
supercalifragilisticexpialidocious if you got the transcripts I would have had it by invisible yeah. I wouldn't have had it because I had I had it it's like almost like a IKEA thing like a modular thing like I know I've got this bit this bit this bit yeah there are the jokes I could put this bit here I could ditch it if it's not the right room so I've got it and it's with me it's all just in my mind like I could sort of see it like a kind of puzzle and mm-hmm. I kind of know where the bits might float around um, and actually to the point that now I write so, I write so little down that it actually annoys me because I'm like unless I've recorded it, I can't even I know I had a really funny thing about whatever but I'm like what was that even and I think yeah. I must have written it down somewhere I'm like, I don't think I actually ever I just wrote the the, the headline of what it was and I'm like, I can't remember what was funny in the how I wrote that's, it that's yeah. another thing where I'm like I really sometimes have to force myself to go back and, and it's just that is that memory of going I said something and I remember saying something that I've never said or said it in a way that I've never said it before and it got a laugh and I need to and I had that moment of stage of like yes and you have to then go back and find what it is and pinpoint that and go okay that's the way to say that but um again that takes uh that takes more admin than uh than I uh, often am willing to I'm with you I hate admin and given that I had a you know an executive job for years I'm absolutely shit at admin I hate doing it and I hate listening back and I hate detail I'm all for like even for podcasts you know when I'm doing my own podcasts with people my research is fast and furious and I do it Mm -hmm. thoroughly but I do not do it two days in advance I'm like right clock's ticking get this shit done in a way it's like you're at a point where you can do that because you know I don't think like people don't want to listen to a podcast that is like you know somebody reading from a script really obviously reading from a script uh hello Sarah it's really nice to you know thank you very much for coming on like it's that's like a news report um and I think people can tell when we're just having you can tell the difference between people having a conversation and people reading a script unless they're fantastic actors which I'm sure we are well, I definitely am not. You may well be. I can promise you I am not. That's why I'm not an actor, because I went to drama school and realised I couldn't act. So I tried that. Not That's the me. worst place to find out. <laughs> it's also the place you'll find out, because you can be the best actor in your shitty rural school, and then you go to a proper drama place. You're like, oh, no, I was just good compared to not very many people, none of whom yeah. liked acting. So you see that's... real actors, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, maybe not for me. And also, actually, um, in seriousness, the reason I didn't pursue acting, apart from lack of talent, was just lack of self-esteem I realized that you you I knew a few actors who were doing quite well a bit older than me and were getting kind of all the parts and even seeing what they went through in terms of how insecure making it is and actually back then how it's still incredibly sexist and unreasonable in terms of gender expectations but back then there was absolutely no point being a young female actor unless you were going to look a certain way and, yeah. and have a certain body shape and I just didn't and I knew I didn't and I knew it'd be incredibly depressing to be to have that reinforced it's so it's such a challenging thing I worked at a drama school when I first moved to London I got a job in a marketing department in a drama school and one of the responsibilities I had was there was like a like a it's called a graduating actors directory which is essentially like a Argos catalogue for the for the graduate the actors who were graduating that year and it's just like their headshot and a list of skills and qualifications they have um and uh I remember this girl French girl coming to see me and she said um can you please she said in her French accent uh, can you please can you please uh put my native accent as uh like British English and uh, I said no I, I mean I can't do that and 
I could tell she was desperate, you know, really kind of like desperately pleading with me, please, can you just put that down? And I was, I was just like, I can't, well, I can't, we can't lie. As an organisation, we can't say something that's not true. You are French. You're talking to me in a French accent. I was like, bare minimum, you could have come here talking to me in an RP accent and yeah. then maybe I could have... Polished off the but, request in RP, if not. Yeah, else yeah, you, you could, could have done, yeah. at least performed for me in yeah. this moment. <laughs> uh, but I just remember it so distinctly thinking like that is that for, in her mind, and maybe it's true, I don't know, but in her mind, that might be the difference between someone going, yeah, let's see her for an audition or let's not is the fact that she is uh, native French. It probably would be, I imagine. Yeah. And I mean, that, and, and that is even less bad than somebody saying, well, I don't want to see that person because of their hair colour, their weight, yeah. their whatever, you know, which and I do understand for parts, you've got to look away that might be commensurate with the part. But certainly when I would have been thinking about getting into it, that would absolutely for a woman have equated to also basically the the basic canvas being classically what you would think of mm -hmm. as attractive unless you wanted to do character acting which is not a very delightful thing to have to be doing from the age of 21 yeah. uh so yeah so that's why I, I didn't get do you, you you act as well uh I mean I'm willing to <laughs> give it a go but I'm not much I mean, like I never went to drama school or anything like that I've, um uh, I studied drama at uni, but it was not really an acting course. It was a, it was a, it was like a, it was a study on the concept of performance. I suppose is like it was very theoretical. And, okay, because mine was very practical. Uh, I was at Goldsmiths, and there was a lot of practical yeah. stuff. We did like we used to do two full days of like acting, and then the rest were like as in sort of you know I say full days. It's probably like ten to four, and I was like, my god, that's a full day, which it wasn't. Oh uni. Yeah. But um, but yeah, <laughs> what we did a long used to <laughs> exactly. We used to do a lot of acting, and we did like presenting and radio. I think probably I picked up the kind of presenting stuff that I then went on to do from doing the radio and television mm. sort of presenting stuff I think that probably suited me better than yeah. acting, acting. Um, so mine was a like, drama studies it was called and it was I, it was I mean I think they made it very clear that this was not you know we were not going to train you to be an actor this is not a course no one's getting somebody. into the RSC after this yeah guys. um and uh and, but it kind of weirdly the thing it did do was encourage you to create your own work like so I know people who are in my year at uni who who are now sort of like live art performers and performance artists who make their own work and they do a lot of sort of um like I'm trying to think oh god it's so bad that I can't think like I studied this for three years and I can't even remember what it's called <laughs> ages it's ago like, though Sarah come on yeah in, in this percentage of your life third of your but life like, ago yeah but not not actors like if anyone's a performer they're doing that something um that's slightly left to feel mm -hmm. i'm probably the most mainstream performer of my year oh really are they citing you know are you in some sort of blue plaque though like sarah Keyworth i don't think so <laughs> i think you should be i think i might be in my school i think there might be like a sort of uh, notable alumni in my school but um that, which is is cool I suppose it's definitely um, cool yeah and your mum uh, will be taking credit for all of it of course they'll be underneath absolutely. she'll have written all oh, thanks yeah. to me yeah all thanks to the toilets and the students union <laughs>
I, do you know what though? I can really when I was going around looking at unis um, with my son, it was, I think he was sort of knew where he was going to go, and it was going to be animal kind of related, and the toilets yeah. weren't going to be good. And what I thought was entirely irrelevant, but with Ella, I remember going around looking at unis and definitely looking at accommodation and uni and the sort of and just thinking, well, that looks. Like, I can see my daughter being there, not realizing that she'd be off, you know, doing MDMA and not giving a shit. <laughs> but, you know, at the time, I was like, yeah. my little cherub is going to be in this nice um, clean environment. You know, if you're going to do MDMA, you need it to be a nice toilet. <laughs> That's very well. It will still probably look a bit nicer. Uh, <laughs> this is such yeah. a great toilet. I love. This I love toilet. this. I love you, toilet. I love, I you love so you. much. You're so bright, sparkly, and cheering. Toilet. You do so much for us. <laughs> and thank you. Let me hug you again. <laughs> so, did you um going back to the thing you said about the breakup that you sort of had it? Because I had I I ended up doing well in in um they didn't call it AS levels then, but I did okay in the mock bit. But then I had exactly the same thing. I split up with somebody and went off really kind of totally banjacks me and by the time so I got all the offers but then didn't get the grades to get in anywhere um because of a breakup and then it's that- such a like like precarious stage of life isn't it to to expect people to essentially take the tests that determine where they're going to go when like, they're bound to be doing everything from breakups to drugs to drink to forming yeah. their own personalities rebelling against where they live could be likely, more of a tumultuous yeah. time most likely to experience your sort of formative heartbreak like yeah. your f- like and and they're like okay cool but can you just keep your head down because this is your future exactly and we haven't even mentioned hay fever season oh um, god yeah. yeah why do they do it why do they do the exams in the summer I know exactly. I mean, imagine yeah. you get a breakup and you've got bad hay fever. You literally write <laughs> off your future. But I do remember that. Um, and again, mine's kind of the opposite of you, which is I ended up at Goldsmiths because I'd done an interview as well. So I didn't get the grades for Goldsmiths, but because they d- they did it partly interview based, it wasn't even like the clearing system. I just called whoever it was in the head of department and said, and because it was drama as well, they'd done there had been some kind of audition, and they did they did take me in on fairly scrappy yeah. grades in an interview. But if they hadn't, I don't think now. I don't know how that is now. Whether that could have happened, and I'm so glad it was Goldsmiths I went to because I got me into a career in telly, and I but definitely kind of wouldn't a, have done it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a sliding doors moment in the sense that, like, I always think about things like this where if somebody else had picked up that phone call, or you know, just somebody, just one other person's decision, then I got a. I, the job at the theatre school, uh, the woman who did my interviews was on maternity. She was doing maternity cover, and she's amazing. We're still friends now. She's just such a fantastic person. Uh, I, I, this sounds sounds like a brag. It is a brag. It's a full brag. Five hundred people applied for that internship, and um, I was. I highly doubt that I was the most qualified person. I didn't come I wasn't coming from like one of the top universities I didn't have the top grades um but I I don't she didn't even know I she she said to me on my first day of work she was like you did graduate by the way and she was like what did you get um so but like I went in for this interview and we just really got on and we had a really nice time and we had a bit of a laugh and then my second interview was with her and another woman who I'm also still friends with who is just amazing and she we just like had a really nice time together and they they gave me the job I think because they liked me and also they were probably like you know this pay is absolutely dog shit so we're gonna like let's just give it an opportunity to someone who we like um and then 
when she she so that was like in the summer and then she left at christmas because the maternity cover ended and absolutely no disrespect to the person who's who came back from maternity leave but i'm pretty confident that had she been interviewing me i would not have got the job mm, that's interesting yeah like just a, you know fantastic her job really really nice person just a bit more serious i think just like I probably wouldn't have appreciated the sense of humour that I had and it would have just been you know it's personal taste at that stage isn't it it's just like it's it's oh you know I like this person I didn't like that person and I think that was the you know that was that was my ability to move to London because I had that job Mm. I I wouldn't have moved to London at that stage if I'd not got that position and uh, it was it, it just put me in a place where I could then gig every night um and I I often think about the fact that, that I don't think I was very good at that job either um that like had it had not been Sally on that first day I wouldn't have I wouldn't have got a second interview I don't think Namaste, motherfuckers. do you sometimes think they said so there are those really positive ones I mean I wouldn't have had Jake um if it hadn't been for the fact that I've been told I was infertile. I was having investigations or something, and they said you're you're infertile. You know, along the way, they found that out and said, you know, you won't ever be able to have um have children, or certainly not without fertility treatment. So Ed and I were like, Jesus, we've been using condoms all these years. We'll ditch them. And like <laughs> six weeks later, I'm like, oh, okay, uh, I guess yeah. I am fertile then. Uh, but and obviously at the time, you know, my twenties wasn't really planning it, but d- delighted I yeah. had him then, and it actually and actually was really pleased in my case that I had had my kids young, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a sliding doors moment as well, um, or a lawsuit against a GP uh, moment. Absolutely, but, <laughs> a full blunder. Yeah, great. But, yeah. Um, but it, I sometimes do think like with relationships as well there you it's so fragile isn't it like when you when you meet so so you know if you go online you happen to go online that week or and that person had gone online you might have gone online another week and they not been on there or mm-hmm. you happen to walk into that bar or get stuck on that train and get talking to someone and then if it's going well, you're like, oh, thank God for the serendipitous nature of the universe. But then a bit of me sort of thinks, what if I missed the one I was meant to meet? Like, what if there is yeah. What if I'm not meant to have been single for 20 years? Because the fucker yeah. I was meant to meet bloody walked through the wrong way through the sliding doors. Do you know what I mean? Soulmates, like, like stopped and tied their shoe on the Yeah, that's to... what I, so I do think. I, I do think about the, the, the missed ones as well. So we, we can retrofit or, or, or conveniently sort of go, oh, isn't it neat that that happened mm-hmm. and that was fate? But what about, what, what I don't know, the paradox our life we might not be living yeah for sure would it be better would it be worse exactly I mean you can argue it with everything as well like this flat that Louisa and I are living in we was torn between two this was the cheaper of the two uh and you think well what would life you know what would have happened to us who would we have met what neighbors would we have had you know what experiences would we have had if You'd have had the experience of the cost of living making you freak the fuck out if you're in the more yeah, expensive yeah, one. Yeah. So I yeah, think it's no, good. We'll... I think in the light of what's gone on, the yeah. cheaper one was hundred percent. Was the right? It was the right <laughs> choice. Totally yeah. the right choice. But we'll never know. We've Maybe also, yeah. we would have found a stack of cash hidden under the sink. Or That's something. true. Or a body in a cupboard, and that wouldn't have been yeah. good. Um, we should, yeah, we haven't. We could have um... sold the body for parts. <laughs> there you go. We've gone full full dark. We should mm-hmm. say as well, we're recording this. Um, having, to, I'm sure you just saw it, that um, on, the day, on the day that Boris Johnson has announced he's resigning. Did you see that before you came on? I was yes. so, I mean, fucking hell. Yeah, we've been on, uh, we've been on Boris watch. Oh my God. Yesterday. I feel so, I feel 
feel slightly, almost slightly stoned with, you know, that sort of like peaceful, like, not stone stone, but like I've had a spliff stone, it's kind of just nice. I feel like something that's been bothering me is just going. I know he's not going today, but I feel like some sort of inner peace has been restored. Uh, I've gone immediately to apprehension. About who next? Yeah, because I'm like, it feels like that bit in a horror movie where you, where they like, where you, you like kill one enemy and the worst think it's back. over and then yeah something else or like well like fatal yeah. attraction where she's going to spring out of the bath when you think she's dead yeah yeah just like or like yeah or like they, they there's a big fight and they kill it and then suddenly you can hear like thunderous footsteps footsteps yeah. and it's just so much bigger and worse than the than the last one do you know why i'm pleased though regardless of what not regardless of what happens next because i mean while we're in the hands we're in we're in deep shit for sure so i'm not naive uh-huh. enough to think oh, brilliant we're going to get a lovely tory now um sorting everything out for us but i do think after watching what happened with trump and watching the way the world has gone so backwards in terms mm-hmm. of everything i mean uh, i mean back to the 50s i'd say yeah. by now probably in terms of, of, of a certain part of the world's views about things i thought were now a given we didn't kind of the bigotry mm-hmm. that i thought i was long gone and there's back so i think the reason i'm so pleased is i mean when trump was in power I, I was so horrified, as I'm sure we all were. Like it literally, it kind of I had rage in me every day and everything I would ever see about him. And Johnson being a sort of bit of a mini Trump, not so mini in later times. I'm just really glad that he's been banged to rights, regardless of what happens next. Yeah, There's an element where I'm like, pure, yeah, yeah, that on a pure sort of personal vendetta level. And what he represents, yeah. you know, his sexism, his you know, his, yeah, his policies, his elitism. I just think oh, we needed to see someone yeah. who was so shamelessly stood for that taken down so that that he, i think that's was, how i feel good about he was it. exemplary of uh, a, a very very privileged man getting away with everything and anything he did yeah and and treating know. people and women not at all well um among many other people among the whole nation who he didn't treat mm-hmm. well so yeah we should uh, take a moment for a little namaste motherfucker thank you somebody yes. out there for making him fall from his perch but that was a complete uh, diversion because i was just wondering why i had a nice little feeling inside me it was partly talking to you <laughs> why am i feeling partly jeff asleep and partly boris johnson's leaving mm-hmm. um but in terms of breakups so to, and, and like that defining thing so you said i'm at the time a breakup that was quite a relationship that was quite short had kind of made me feel I I was feeling so bad like I wasn't able to make decisions and my mum helped me but actually I look back at my first couple of breakups my first major one when I was 16 which to this day I remember my mum saying to me oh this you know that you won't it's kind of puppy love it's going to really hurt but you'll look back on this in the future and think no you know that wasn't Mm. but actually I still look back at that and think no that was absolutely definingly agonizingly heartbreakingly serious I don't feel 40 years nearly 40 years later that that was not really hugely upsetting and of course my mum said it really kindly and to to support me at that time because that's the only thing you can say and it was the right thing for her to say but it's you can't be like this is going to devastate you in 40 years time you're still going to feel this (laughs) it's one of the last things you think about before you shuffle off this mortal coil (laughs) so there was that that breakup with Nick Young that was enormously painful but then my breakup in sixth form was also enormously painful I did Mm. actually get back with him and then I was with him for the next few years I'm on and off but but I do think those those breakups are massively defining. And, and I know you you know you're whatever you are, 10 years past that, and I'm a lot longer past that. But I, I do think those things, they sort of set up a bit of an imprint as to how we can be with people. It's it's massively how significant. You, how you love in the future, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. I also 
I, I don't know whether or not your relationships at that time were with like men or women or anything like that. But like for me, being gay, being queer, my first girlfriend was a girl, like she was one of my friends at school. And we. And this was had, the relationship that split up? No, things. it uh. wasn't. So we, we dated on and off for like two or three years. And it was a complete secret from everybody. We, we were so terrified of anyone finding it out. And the way in which that manifested itself was that she was quite at liberty. And, and also she's a, she's a very nice person and she was a teenager. So I'm not going to like, like we've talked about it now and we still communicate, like we're still friends now. So she, and she sort of said to me like, oh, I'm really sorry because I treated you like shit. But she was sort of at liberty to kind of break up with me, go out with somebody else when she was sort of bored with them. I would kind of be sat there waiting. So we we just would continuously off again, on again. Um, and who was she going out with? When she was going out with other people, was she going out boys. with boys? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's you always... were like a kind of dirty secret, albeit that that's yeah. not how it was positioned. Yeah, and she did, she was able to have these sort of like, you know, public relationships and then they would end and then she, you know, she'd be with me for a while. And, uh, and I truly believe that the reason that I was uh allowing myself to be treated that way because you know as much as you can paint a picture of this horrible person I my my main thing is that I'm just like you know she was a teenager and she was probably confused and all over the place and you can't really hold anybody accountable for things that they do at the age of 16 unless they're heinous crimes uh but um I allowed her to do that I was very very willing to and it was heartbreak every time she broke up with me I was devastated and I I truly believe that or I think I remember feeling like she was the only other queer person I knew and I did not know whether I would meet another woman who would be attracted to me and interested in me and then eventually we broke up and uh, just as we were starting sixth form and I met someone else who was attracted to me and we didn't date for very long but I think there was this such a like my then then my connection to her was so like oh my god you're the other one you're the other person that exists you are the proof to me that there is somebody else in this world who you know you've you are how I've managed to get out of that, that cycle of heartbreak and so that's an intense amount of pressure to put on that person who was also 17. And I was, you know, there was a real sense of like victory and freedom in in meeting someone else and fancying someone else and going, oh, okay, I've, I'm now not sort of reliant on this one human being for my potential chance at romance and happiness uh, but it did mean that I thought that I was reliant on that second but so like the the fear of not knowing and like this was pre uh, I think Facebook was just starting to be a thing but it was pre like Instagram and Twitter and things like mm. that I had no sense of like how vast the queer community was in the world and I have no sense that I would uh, you know go to uni move to London and just meet uh, like countless other queer like people and I I would have ample dating opportunity because I lived in a small area of Nottingham and and thought the world 
but was very small. And it was even just, I guess we're talking, what, 10 years ago, slightly more than 10 years ago? That, that so, was, yeah, I'm 29 yeah. now, so, yeah, sort of 12, 12, 12 years, years ago. ago. And, but actually, hard as it is to believe, you know, e even if there had been Instagram and Twitter and everything back then, I mean, the world has moved rapidly, not rapidly enough, but rapidly in terms of uh, every, us understanding kind of what mm -hmm. we're allowed to be, who we're allowed to be, it, what other communities there might be that we might feel that we're a part of, giving voices to that, um, educating people who don't understand that, you know, developing allies and other, I mean, it's it's changed really rapidly. I remember when I first worked in television, this is a lot longer ago, but I remember knowing a lot of gay men and I didn't know any lesbians, but I did obviously know lots of lesbians, but but no one was talking about being no, a lesbian. Yeah, and yeah. I I did a um, one of these with Kathleen Wyatt, Kathleen Wyatt, who's a journalist and she's written an incredible book about lying being a superpower. But she has two massive lies in her book, one of which is when she nearly died, had um, a heart failure when she was 19 or something. And the other bit is that she did not come out at work of all places her friends knew her family knew mm -hmm. she did not come out at work she's a high profile journalist for years and she would get to the point where she was like it was getting ridiculous and people would be like are you gonna bring your husband or have you got a boyfriend and she was just like oh I, I'm just not I'm ducking it yeah and and she and she really berates herself but I did say to her, you know I was in that same world as you at that same time and it was really the people were, there was massive, particularly for women. It was, I'm not saying it was easy for men at all, but men were out and women were not at that point. The language of the, the way in which people talked and, and perceived lesbians when I was a, a teenager was uh, horrible. Mm. It was, you know, these uh, uh, manly women, like, men hating militant you know all the way in which like they'd use feminist as a disparaging word mm. and and it was everything you know everything that put people off and were completely unattractive and unsexy and now I'm like oh, I am a man hating masculine woman <laughs> I guess <laughs> I well, that's that's and do you know what it's really fun <laughs> it's so nice and it's um, all thanks to you wankers putting the yeah, idea in my head like but are you just told that that is that nobody like that it, it's completely unfanciable to be that person it and, takes a uh, while to work out what is what when you're told all of that you can spend a long part of your adult life re-educating yourself, never mind what society says, but it's allowing yourself to know you, you that person. Yeah. That you might be allowed to get more like the you you were hiding, and as you get more like the you you were hiding, thereby getting more attractive because mm. it's authentic and it's vulnerable and it's you. But it's yeah. very hard when you've when you've had that something that's in, unwittingly been silencing you all those years and where those really formative years when some people are like able to be like this is how I want to look this is who I want to be and you're having to mute that at mm -hmm. that really important time have your kind of voice and identity a bit taken away from you that's because I know you talked in your first show Dark Horse about um about that pressure the sort of bullying and the pressure to conform to gender stereotypes which you didn't conform to and it, it absolutely not being a kind of an easy thing to be navigating yeah I mean I've got a there's a, there's a line in my radio show where I say that the only lesbian comedian that I knew about when I was younger was Joe Brand, and she's not even a lesbian. <laughs> this is Are You a Boy or a Girl, your Radio 4 show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. we'll put a link to. And um, is that, because that's also about, like, experiences 
around gender right that we still in the 20 this stage in the 21st Mm -hmm. century these bizarre things still happen and these strange experiences some of which are quite depressing a lot of which are funny I mean yeah and we're and we're right back in it now the conversation about gender was such a flourishing and exciting one like two three years ago and then there's just been this horrible sort of resurgence of bigotry and fear and um and and it's so Oh, I mean, it's just so disheartening and frustrating. I mean, we've literally seen it this week where people like Bette Midler have have come out. And I, I, I mean, maybe this sounds patronising or dismissive, but I truly believe that like people like that just have the wrong conversation at the wrong time with the wrong person. And somebody mm-hmm. says, you know, like this, have you heard about all this? Have you heard about the fact that they're erasing women? Have you heard about the fact that they calling us menstruators rather than saying women and things like that and, and, and convincing them that there is an attack on women without explaining to them, that it's not an attack and nobody is trying to erase cisgender women and nobody's trying to minimize the experience of being a woman. Uh, but they're simply just trying to give space and freedom to trans people who have had equal, if not more struggle. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that's it. If you have the wrong person in your ear and you have a platform and you think to yourself, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and say something about this. I have a platform. I'm gonna go and say something. This is, this is not on." Then, uh, and then you do, and you do, you, you do it rashly. There was a, a really real well-known comedian who I won't name who um, retweeted something of J.K. Rowling's a few years ago, and uh, pretty much immediately uh, deleted the retweet. Just did a tweet that said. Um, listen, uh, my children have just kind of explained to me the complexities of the situation. I don't know enough to publicly comment on this. I'm, I'm going to withdraw myself. Like I, I, I acted kind of rashly and I'm going to take myself out of this conversation and I don't necessarily agree or disagree with anything, but I just, I don't know enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is what's going on with a lot of um, these, these people is, is that they are reacting. They hear something, they go, oh my God, that's awful. And they don't... Um, they don't actually know the, the details and they don't have anybody in their life to sit them down and go, you know, there's a lot more to it than those headlines that you've been given. It's almost another side and a very, very um, precipitous sliding doors moment, isn't it? Is who you happen to have in your ear or don't have in your ear at the time mm-hmm. that you develop your opinions. And, and there is that confirmation bias thing as well. If you kind of surround yourself with people who back up your view, which when you start going public with views like that, you will get, then you start to get in your bubble of, well, that is correct. And these people yeah. back me. Well, I, one of the things that, my, that I think is most, um, most brilliant about what we are lucky enough to do for a living and most tricky for people who have maybe different life experiences is that we are forced into the throes of so many different types of people, right? In terms of age, gender, you can't do what we do and just go around in a bubble going, well, I'll just talk to people like me. It's not possible. You can't be backstage. You can't talk to tech. You can't do anything if in your mm-hmm. own image, right? Um, it, it, you know, you don't probably meet many people like you on the circuit. I don't meet many people like me. And one of the things I think that there's, it's partly about a diverse demographic in every possible way, but it's also is an age demographic. I think some people coming out with these opinions who are my age and older, 
unless you're going to talk to people who are not my age and older, you do not know what the experience is as well of people who have come through a completely different environment with completely different norms. And mm. unless we're willing to actually listen, you know, what, what, and be educated by people not like ourselves, then we're not. I often think things that go rage um, and dangerously on, online are purely out of ignorance. Somebody's never spoken to the right people, doesn't understand other right people, mm. broad enough range of people. And, and I often think it, and, and it is, it's that, sh- you know, these, I think it's very dangerous to be writing off um, age groups as well. And people are like, oh, Gen Z are like this and millennials are like this. It's like, why don't you, I don't like it. And people say, you don't seem like a 53 year old. I'm like, how many 53 year olds are you talking to? Because I mm-hmm. do. And I think it's, yeah. it is that, that those being in a bubble and not allowing yourself to get educated because ignorance is a large part of the problem rather than a Machiavellian aim, I think. Yeah. And I think that it's so easy for, older generations with all their lived experience everything that they've been through to write off the opinions of the young Mm -hmm. as nonsense at our peril i would say and um but you know that used to be not so much now but it used to be a sort of common stand-up trope to make a joke about how racist your granddad is or something your nan said that was not on and uh, and that's kind of died out a bit. I think stand up is a really interesting um, like uh, you can sort of study the trends of stand up to see what's happening. Uh, and and I think it's kind of died off a little bit. You might see it every so often. Oh, well, you know, my you know that's why my granddad has all these opinions about Uber drivers. Mm-hmm. La la la. Mm-hmm. And um, I think like it's it is. I mean, it's accurate. It's an accurate representation of the the older generation 10 years ago thought that campaigning for gay rights or i mean 10 20 years ago thought that campaigning for gay rights and gay marriage and things like that was a load of old nonsense and why are you doing this what this is ridiculous why you what ridiculous thing to campaign for what you know why should those people have to be able to do the things that we do why should they take up our spaces why did they why should they live like we live and uh and it's just the, it's the same thing that always happens it you know it happened with with people with color as well uh, uh, people of color and i just it, it, we're just seeing it again but it's so the, the the real dangerous bit of this conversation is the idea that people think that i mean, I thought, I mean maybe it's always this way maybe it's always white people going you know ah oh, what we have is being threatened and straight people going no 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 that's this is ours, this is our thing. And, and maybe that's what's going on with women right now, particularly women, I think, like are not all women, but there's a certain group of women who are going, no, 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 we, we got this and we worked hard for this. Mm. You can't have any of this. You can't have any, have any of this. I think this it is a bit generational. Like, I, do yeah. that. I do think there's a lot of women my age in that group. Um, I, I definitely think that, that it's it, my generation of women are, and I should be clear that I am not one of those women, but I do think that, well, I, I don't just think, I know that a lot of women my age are feeling that and, and are sort mm-hmm. of conflating how hard we fought in terms of, yeah, what we what we stand for as what we think is women with, with it. And it's a different, it's a completely, it's, it's it, no one's saying that needed to happen and it has happened and here we are. And now what needs to happen doesn't, doesn't take away from that. That's here. Yeah. And, and I would say it's actually still going to be built on with this. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, and it's, it can it, only improve it really. It can only, you know, 
but it's that yes. thought that it's all stuff and nonsense because it's and just because we don't understand it. It's like what's all this modern stuff? Right, I don't get it. Yeah. Like, what, what are they doing there? Why are they having sort of it? Almost like it's a sort of believe, teenage you, rebellion. You believe in fantasy. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not real. I know. It's like, well, it's it depressing. Real, it wouldn't be happening. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Well, uh, we've had Boris leaving. We've had the trans debate being, getting ever more um, mired in uh, bigotry mm-hmm. from women like me sometimes. So uh, apologies on behalf of my... Not women uh, like you. <laughs> Not women like me. That's true. Yeah. And what are women like me as well? That's a terrible generalisation. Yeah. Um, we should just, before I ask you the three questions I ask everyone, I just want to obviously give a bit of a shout out to Lost Boy, your new Edinburgh show, because this yeah. will be going out uh, probably about a week or two before you go to Edinburgh. So we'll put a link to tickets if there are any left. I dare say, um, I, I imagine it's selling or oh, sold. There will, well. there will be. Just, <laughs> it's almost sold out, guys. Getting quick. Uh, last couple of tickets. Uh, so, lost, so just tell us. Um, you're at the Pleasance again. Uh, uh, Pleasance they, they uh, Cabaret you. Bar in the Courtyard. Yeah. Amazing. And just yeah, tell, yeah. give us the kind of uh, the elevator pitch for Lost Boy. Uh, lost Boy is about um, uh, the tough couple of years that I've had. Uh, and it's about coming out of that, moving through it, um, rediscovering how to be silly and move forward and be a stand-up comedian when you're not feeling particularly cheerful. And the last funny. couple of years being pandemic, obviously. Pandemic, breakup, uh, significant loss of a friend, which is a big thing. Like, it's just like, it's, a, you know, when life is sort of an onslaught and your job is to... Uh, essentially be a clown how do you how do you find that how do you draw from that well of uh of funny if it's significantly depleted well if there's an answer um, to that can you just tell me it I <laughs> uh, come and see the show I haven't solved it yet but hopefully I will okay, by great August. Well, if, you, if you come up with an ending please share it um and and for anyone who doesn't know uh you were your last show you were nominated for Dark Horse for Best Newcomer at uh Edinburgh was that 2019 that was 2018 yeah and then I did Pacific in 2019 yes. and then uh, and then and then something happened Yes, so this is your third solo show, but as anyone who's a comedy fan will know, getting nominated for Best Newcomer for your first show uh, was not a bad uh, way to get out the gates. I know by then you'd won all sorts of other shit. complaining at the end Yeah, exactly. Um, And getting uh, getting all those star reviews in all the right places as well. So, yeah, Mm. I'm sure everybody listening will know who you are and why they should go see you. But anyone who doesn't, (laughs) go see Sarah Keyworth in Edinburgh. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Sarah, as your namaste? motherfucking life-changing moment uh it's, it's a bit weird because i don't know if it's actually it might it might stop working because it's very recent it's in it's in the last like two weeks uh but i was having a bit of a difficult a bit of a spicy mental health period and um i have a new therapist who and this is it's gonna sound anyone listening to this who has uh, had had this experience is gonna tell me like literally be like dead genuinely fuck off because I when she started talking me through this I was like uh you know I've been here before uh this doesn't work for me um but she got me to write down just every sort of negative thought about uh, like I have about myself and then she got me to call it like give it a name like a radio station she was like some people use radio stations or tv channels or things like that but like name name it so I gave I called it Misery FM as a radio show, and she's like, "I want you to 
literally treat these thoughts as content on a radio show in your head they are they're one channel and every time you think of something really negative you can certainly you can dismiss it as oh that's just on misery fm and i i'm i'm having the thought it's this it's basically it's it's the concept the concept of what the well-known concept of noticing thoughts acknowledging them and letting them go but it's the most useful way anybody has ever explained to me how to do that because i've had people say that oh yeah acknowledge the thought and let it pass and i'm like how do i let it pass where do i put it where do i where mm. do i send it and it's kind of it's just been so useful to me to go oh yeah yeah that is that's just a station that sometimes starts playing in my head and it, it does yeah it's, it can be separate to me it's not actually real it's just like sometimes that radio flicks on and it spews out a bunch of stuff and uh and i can just go all right well that's fine let it play I love it. Thoughts, not facts. That's actually, as somebody who's worked as a coach for 20 years, and I use every which way of these, I've never heard of that one before. Yeah, um, it was just like such a weird, like, uh, literally as she was saying it, I was like, yeah, all right. Like, I've done, you know, I've been told about mindfulness. I've been told about uh, the sort of CBT and all this stuff. Like, I know, I understand this, like, you know, separate yourself from your thoughts thing. But, like, genuinely... It's the 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 best tool I've ever been given. I love it for just have like having a really horrible thought about yourself and going, oh well, that's just you know that's just that's just programming on misery FM. I love that, and it's also um, totally portable, right? So yeah. anywhere you're going, you can yeah. Yeah, anything like that actually is doable because you get all these kind of ethereal concepts. I'm going to be more mindful. I'm going to watch my thoughts go by. I'm going to, but actually that's, yeah. Well, I reckon um, that's my, uh, as you know, I always have a takeout that I'm going to do. So I'm going to do that. But most yeah. of all, I'm going to make loads of money uh, getting people who I coach to do that, Sarah. So yeah. thanks for that. I'm going to no, I really, it. really recommend it. Get them yeah. to get, like name it themselves. Brilliant. And um, and it's, it's such a, I, I've never ever had an experience like this in therapy before where like there's just this, this, it's, it's working and it might not always work there might be a point in my life where like things but like in the couple of weeks since I was having a really like just psych real cycle of negative thoughts and feeling very down on myself I've noticed a real shift and it, and I do I think uh, it's given me a bit almost an ability to push those thoughts out of yeah. the way well, I'd, um, I think it takes the award for most uh, most takeawayable for people listening. And Namaste, yeah. motherfucking moment. And most recent. So there you go. You're a double, double award winner. You haven't even got to Edinburgh. <laughs> so congrats. No, I'm super. I'm very new to it. And I can't vouch for the longevity. But, but you can vouch for the efficacy. Yeah. Amazing. It's, um, it's, it's been good stuff. Brilliant. And what is your favourite joke? Uh, so my favourite joke... I don't. I I couldn't think of like a like a like a line, and this is the thing with me is that I think like sometimes the stuff in stand up and and things that makes me laugh is not necessarily the like thing that was supposed to. Like I love there's there's certain things where it's like like there's a Jess Foster bit where she's talking about um you know she she's pregnant and she says uh you know i'm just hoping that i have like a like a real strong girl or a real gentle boy uh and she was like and because of being like uh, because i was such a wanker about it i've ended up with 
and, and the way she says it, she's a very violent boy. And it's the way in which she says it, it's just like, it's, it's, it's like sticks in my mind. Or like, and hench, it, that was, that was, she yeah. from hench, wasn't it? Yeah. And there's a Sean McLaughlin bit that like I saw years ago when I looked like the first show I saw it. Um, I think Sean McLaughlin, pretty much everything he does is my favorite. He's a genius. Uh, but my first ever show that I saw at Soho Theatre, he had this bit about being in a restaurant with his mom and I think it was about how his parents were separating and his mom was going through a hard time and they're in this Italian restaurant and she's saying to him like Sean I don't really you know I, what do you think I should do and he says why are you asking me for advice I am covered in spaghetti and it's just so <laughs> stupid it's just, it's just like just really like he's so good at just like doing like, so for you it's the de- it's the delivery it's also that yeah i know exactly what you mean yeah. and by the way anyone who does i listened to your put the hoover your hoovering app with um just oh, yeah. just foster q as one of the things i listened to before i was going to interview you so i'll put a link to that but, um uh, yeah but uh a routine that has like stood out to me that i think lots of people have seen it's been doing the rounds on um on on uh, social media a lot at the moment but I think it's it's a it's a real special routine and it's very apt uh, and it's the George Carlin routine from 1996 yeah. about uh, pro-life conservatives in America and the whole concept is they are just in favor of the the unborn and he's got that amazing line which is like if you're pre-born you're fine if you're preschool you're fucked and it's this the whole thing is just like they don't care about you like they care about you until you're a lot like you're born and then they can and then you're on your own and uh it's such a it's really funny and it's so smart and it's just such a excellent 1996 he was doing that material Mm. such an amazing example of a cis white man using his platform Mm. to speak out for women and vulnerable people and i just you know that is what a what an example to set for for every other comedian to be like he doesn't need to be saying that nobody would notice if he didn't say Mm. it but he's like yeah i want to say this i want to say this stuff and he's perfectly positioned to do it. He was perfectly positioned to he do was. it. He was. And we'll put, we'll put a link to that. T- tragic reasons that it needs to be uh, going mm. viral, uh, but really important that it is. So, yeah, no, thank you. And I love George Carling anyway. Anything, George Carling, you can uh, yeah. put, well, we, I, we always want to give it an airing on this. And if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, Sarah, what would it be? Um, my bit of life advice would be um that life is long and there's always a new day and try not to spend your whole life worrying about the future when like this is the thing that I do I feel like I spend my whole life worrying about what's going to be happening to me like in in two months in a year's time in six years time in like 30 years time like worrying where I'll be and uh and I'm trying to like put myself in this mindset of being like well you know what you're going to do next week and it sounds nice so (laughs) like let's just have a think about that for a while like like there is always there's there's sounds it's so wanky to be like there's always 
tomorrow but like there is we've got to get through tomorrow so let's just let's just do that oh it's such a so close to saying live in the moment isn't it what a fucking or breaking into a song from annie yeah but um but that's what i'm trying to do at the moment is just try and not worry it's so much easier said than done oh it is isn't it but my actual my actual bit of advice is to try that radio station thing that was sarah keyworth so that is almost it for this week every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guest that i'm going to do and this week well it's got to be all about noticing thoughts acknowledging them and letting them go So I'm going to try the naming it radio station type approach as featured in Sarah's Namaste motherfucking moment and also in her life advice. I think it's the first time we've had the same thing feature in both. So um, I'm going to try it, the radio station approach. Stay tuned. See what I did there? Radio station? Ah, never mind. So that is almost it for this week. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. Please do remember to rate, review and keep supporting us. We so love you for doing that. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as we always are, when I will be talking to pathologist to the stars, Susie Lishman. You know, I think I have imposter syndrome probably less now than I have done in the past. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.